0: Good, many of you have arrived in the last 24 hours. I thought it'd be appropriate to say a few things about Satipatthana, establishment of the forms of mindfulness. And I'm not so interested tonight to speak about them as a meditation exercise, although you're all on a meditation retreat here and I'm sure you have set high goals for yourself. Tonight I'm interested in looking at these Satipatthanas, these four uh, forms of establishing mindfulness as a model for experience. So I'm interested in using these, uh, the teaching on Satipatthana as a sort of chart for human experience. You know There aren't that many maps in Buddhism for human experience. One of these maps is called the Ayatanas. The ma- the sense fields, so when the Buddha speaks analytically, he uses often the, um, the breakdown of human experience in terms of our sense fields, our five exterior senses. And as you know, in Buddhist psychology, the sixth sense is the mind base, uh, with its objects as taste uh, as thought and image, which would be the equivalent of, say, what the taste is to the tongue. So the sixth sense has as a mind base, and as its objects, it has the contents of mind, namely things like thoughts, concepts, images, such like. So these six sense fields are often used as a model for human experience. Then another model for human experience is the five kandas, the five aspects of experience, which are Actually, they're more complicated than meets the eye. Well, the five khandas are, first of all, we don't quite understand why why they seem so important. They're not at the first glance very um, psychologically easily understood, because they map human experience in very different ways than we probably would for the last 100 years. But they're a very interesting model, and they're particularly used in Buddhist teaching to look at establishing the third of the characteristics, at establishing the characteristic of impersonality. So there's a huge and beautiful section on teachings with many many beautiful similes on the khandhas in the kandhasam of the collected discourses, connected discourses, sorry they're called in English. And the Satipatthanas are ranking up there as a model for nothing less, but the whole gamut of human experience. Let me say something to the term. You're probably familiar with the Satipatthana Sutta. You may be surprised to hear that there is more than one. Um, In fact, uh, the Pali alone has three of them. A famous one, the so-called big, which is in the Dighanikaya in the long discourses, and then a little shorter one, in the middle length things and then an abbreviated one somewhere in the Vibhanga. Yeah, the Abhidhamma Pitika has also a version of the Satipatthana Sutta which is somewhat abbreviated but much less known than these famous suttas are smaller teachings on the Satipatthana, quite a number of small teachings an abundance really and many many small nuggets of insightful little facets are kind of found in the smaller teachings. So if we pull all this together, we have a number of teachings in many different places. Particularly in the Samyutta Nikaya, there's a whole section with over a hundred small texts on, on Satipatthana. And then the other early Buddhist traditions of which we know of, they also have versions of the Satipatthana. So they occur in Chinese, they occur in the uh, early Sanskrit texts. So Satipatthana has been a real big topic in uh, Buddhist teachings across the board. So. Now these Satipatthanas get their name from obviously the two key terms in there. One of them is sati, mindfulness, about which we have to maybe spend some time uh, on another occasion. And that second term, upatthana or patthana, slightly more uh, mysterious. The famous translation of that term as foundations is well established in English, it's been basically used for the last 50 or 60 years, and it's hard to dislodge it as the representative translation for the second part of the Satipatthana, of the Patthana bit. But that concept can also be translated in different ways because, as you may know, Sanskrit terms, they have their riddle, they have their rules how they're put together, and the composite Satipatthana can not just be broken down into Sati and patana, mindfulness and foundation but it can also be broken down in Sati and upatana, which does give us a slightly different meaning and for meditators quite an interesting one because um, within the first translation it looks like these Satipatthanas are basically four patches where the Buddha suggested we particularly pay attention and learn to establish mindfulness. The second translation lays the focus not so much on the objective ground for the practice of mindfulness, but on the subjective development of the actual activity of mindfulness. Yeah, that's an interesting little distinction. It's a lot more practical than may than it may sound like at the beginning. The Uh, establishment of mindfulness as not an objective thing out there, a ground on which we pile mindfulness on top of, but actually the activity of bringing to life mindfulness. The world upatana, which is documented in many, many places uh, together with the term sati in the scriptures, uh, means something like standing nearby, bringing bringing something into into being, standing nearby, ministering to, and um, looking after. So, like um, somebody who looks after somebody, somebody who ministers to somebody else's needs. That's an interesting meaning because it completely shifts the emphasis from the objective place where sati should be established to the subjective activity of doing it. So one way of referring to that is simply calling uh, presencing, making sati come into the presence, yeah. standing in the presence of, standing nearby, administering to something. Yeah. These four satipatthanas are easily named. First one is Kayanupassana, the domain of poti. Vedanupasana, uh, the domain of uh, experiencing things as pleasant or unpleasant, for which we don't quite have a proper term in English. Um, so we sometimes translate them as feeling, which is misleading. Um, and I would probably call them feeling tone. You know, vedana, it's a, it's a quirky word, feeling tone. It doesn't quite go down well, isn't it? It's something artificial about it. And yet, that's precisely what is good. Because Vedana are not actually sensations, despite contrary uh, teachers who claim this. Uh, I'm quite adamant about this. Vedana is not a sensation. Uh, And Vedana are certainly not emotions. So, strictly speaking, we know exactly what Vedanas are. They are the uh, pleasurable, the degree of agreeableness or disagreeableness in our psychological experience. In other words, it's not just the liking or the disliking, that would be already the next step, but it's how pleasant or how unpleasant something registers in our system. There's a third option, which is a lot less popular and a lot less documented. Um, Sometimes it's called the neutral part between the pleasant and the unpleasant, but actually that is slightly... um, it's slightly embellished. It's not actually neutral. It's just that we're indifferent. Yeah. We don't care. Yeah. So things are either pleasant or things are not pleasant, and the bit in, the me- in between, we don't actually care much. Yeah. So rather than being, uh, you know, objectively neutral ground, again, it is basically a piece of affective experience we're not really interested in. The technical word, for that second uh, of the Satipatthanas, Vedana, the technical word would be hedonic, from the Greek word for pleasure, hedone. So it's the, the amount of pleasure we get out of a thing. And if we want to be precise, we'd have to acknowledge that this pleasurable thing is happening all the time. We're all the time having Vedanas. Right now you're having Vedanas. Now most of the time, we are only getting these Vedanas things if they spike on our meters, if the intensity is high enough that it registers as distinctly pleasant or distinctly unpleasant. So it's a matter of intensity and in terms of our mindfulness, with honesty we would have to say that most of our decisions where our attention goes is based on this little experience of Vedana, on whether we like something whether we find it pleasant or whether we don't like something and we find it not pleasant. That is probably the major determining factor where our attention goes. If you're interested in the economy of your mindfulness, or let's let's be precise. We're not speaking of mindfulness yet. We're just speaking of attention. These two are not quite the same. If we're looking at the economy of our attention, uh, it's basically Vedanas that rule. The pleasant one I like to have more of, I like to keep and I like to maximize. And the unpleasant one I'd like to either not be there when it's happening or I'd like to decrease its intensity or I try to not give my attention to. I try to paddle away from. That term is crucial and it is underestimated. Strangely enough, we don't seem to have In Western psychology, a clean acknowledgement of the importance of that. It is no secret that things that are pleasant engender in us the wish to hang on to. They engender in us the wish to intensify, to vary a little, and to stay there. We like to prolong, we like to keep, we like to um, hold on to it. The, The unpleasant is quite similar. We like it to stop, we like it to go away, we like not to be there. So we have various strategies to not be there when it's happening. One strategy is to find something that is more pleasant than this thing is unpleasant. That's called distraction, a very well-documented phenomenon. Uh, Much of our entertainment industry lives not uh, on the basis of it providing us an intrinsic pleasure. Most of the time when we resort to distractions, we're actually not seeking the intrinsic pleasure of what we distract ourselves with, but we're trying to get away from something that is less pleasant or unpleasant. Our whole entertainment industry could just pack up if we were actually rating them on the degree of intrinsic pleasure they would provide. They could just pack up. They wouldn't make much success. But because a large part of us wants to get away from stuff, sometimes boredom, sometimes pain, sometimes just lack of stimulus, sometimes uh, in rather dramatic ways. Just before I came here, uh, Christina uh, brought to our understanding an, an article in the Boston Globe about a little harmless experiment done with people who, who were given the option of either sitting in a chair 15 minutes to themselves with the task of just thinking something. Something of their choice. It wasn't a particular exercise. They weren't even asked to meditate. No, 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 no. Just sitting there, think and don't stimulate yourself for 15 minutes. So there's nothing to read, there's nothing to listen to, there's nothing particularly to see. You have switched off your devices, so you're not fiddling with your gadgets and you're just sitting in a chair thinking 15 minutes that was one option, and the other option was whether you could stimulate yourself with a mild electric shock. You know? <laughs> oh. A mild electric shock, nothing threatening. Uh, by most people's rating, this would be unpleasant, but you know, survivable. Uh, it wasn't going to be threatening, or it wasn't going to be agonizing, but it was painful, and Um, Then people were asked whether they, if they had money in this experiment, if they would um, give that money to avoid the electric shock. And many, many people said yes, whatever money they had available, they would use to avoid such electric shocks. And to everybody's surprise, including the guys who made these tests, uh, 60% of the men preferred to shock themselves rather than sit there and think for 15 minutes without being shocked and at least one third of the women actually shocked themselves. So, One guy used that shock thing in 15 minutes 190 times. So it seems to be, even when we're not asked to meditate, just to sit in a chair and do a little bit of thinking, that the Vedana tone of our own thinking is so unpleasant that at least 60% of the male and a third of the women prefer to actually receive actively unpleasant physical sensation to just being there with themselves for 15 minutes and think. Now that says something about us. The sample is quite sizable of people. I forgot how many it was, but it, it wasn't just an anecdotal number of 15 or so. It was quite a sizable sample. They played with variations, uh, they used to meditators who did look better on the score. Meditators seem to have a higher tolerance just to to sit still and think. <laughs> but it is quite a statement, isn't it, so, that a substantial part of, of our uh, contemporaries are basically finding thinking 15 minutes without further stimulation so disagreeable that they prefer physically unpleasant experiences like electric shocks. Now, that makes a statement to me. Yeah, I feel this is powerful. The, the article is in the Boston Globe. The, the research is backed up there. I'm, uh, obviously, you're deprived right now. You can't really get at this stuff. You have to take it on faith. Uh, and uh, I'm sure it's still going to be there if uh, you're keen to follow up on this after the retreat. So, Vedana play a major role. In many, many of our decisions. They play a major role in the the directing of our attention and they play a major role in our general state of well-being. Our usual response to pleasant Vedana, besides the grasping at it, is also that we get a good mood. We see there's a dessert and even the anticipation of the dessert brightens our mood, let alone the actual gratification when we enjoy the dessert, so the same happens unfortunately when things are unpleasant, when our perceptions of something turn out to be unpleasant. Then usually that is followed by a sense of either disappointment, or despondency, mild depression, dysphoria, um, anger. Yeah? Um, so we have very strong responses to these Vedana. Which takes us to the third of the Satipatthanas. The domain is that of citta. Citta is a complex term. Uh, In the suttas it is not really defined. The citta is the place where things happen in our experience. It's where we go when we are asked, how are you feeling? What's happening? How are you doing? That's generally where we go. We ask that part. The citta is not a thing. It is a process. It is a complex process. It has things like intention in there, then it has things like affective notes in there. It has little moods in there, but it has also long-term temperamental uh, patterns in there. Um, usually, it's the taste of our experience. Now, citta is where we feel the flavor of our experiences. Citta uh, are the third of the grounds, the Buddha suggests, we try to establish mindfulness in and understand how it works. So, uh, Western psychology would map it as emotion. That is true, but it's not quite the whole truth. Uh, The citta is also the place where samadhi happens, in other words, where the mind gets calm. The citta is where purification happens, in other words, where the mind um, is... Liberated from bad habits and from leftovers and fallouts from uh, other bad habits. The citta is um, the place where we feel connected. The citta is one of the places where Brahma viharas are taking place, so the four immeasurables. Uh, the citta is also unfortunately uh, easily seduced. The citta is capable to of profound intuitions, and at the other end of the spectrum the citta can behave like the proverbial monkey mind, this is by the way a Pali term, Kapi-citta, it's a, an old term, it's not a novel invention, so you're, if your mind occasionally behaves like a wild monkey running through the forest, uh, then you're in good company. Um, That term has been coined a long time ago, and presumably because the experience of running a racing monkey through the branches of a forest uh, has been experienced before you. So, the chitta is a sort of the habitat, and it's difficult to pinpoint a habitat, you know, there's the frogs in there, and then there's the reed, and then there's the water, and then there's the algae. And you can say the citta is not one thing or the other. It's the complete mix. It's the amalgamum. Uh, the Abhidhamma has tried to disentangle this the, uh, history a little bit and has come up with a variety of factors, um, complex uh, permutations of differing factors, which is this neatly mapped out. In the suttas, in the early suttas, we have two things that are becoming obvious. If the Buddha speaks of developing something, of purifying something, of stilling something, of um, um, expanding something, of infusing something. He always speaks of the citta. So the citta is the non-analytical term for mind in early Buddhist teaching. And that citta is referred to as having some sort of continuity. It's not really solid, everything in there changes. It doesn't really belong to me. Everything in there is basically impersonal. Um, um, Nothing in there lasts and can make me happy. So everything in there is at least unsatisfactory and contingent. At the same time, there is a coherence there. The fellow I put down on my pillow at night has something to do with the fellow I get up with in the morning. They're not quite identical. Sometimes I go to bed grumpy and I wake up quite happy. Um, but it's not identical and yet there is a continuity. In that citta, things are possible, like memory. Yeah? I suddenly have a feeling of past. I'm not identical with the guy on the picture because he's only three years old and he's going there with the stroller and Auntie Mary out in the forest. but. There is a connection there with that guy in the photograph and the guy who sits on the cushion here. I can acknowledge there is a continuity, not an identity, but a continuity. This continuity takes place in the citta. So the citta is a complex thing. It's complex. Vedanas are not so complex. They're fast. They're quite rapid in succession. They come and they go. they trigger things, but they're in themselves, they're not very competent, com- complex. I like it or I don't like it. Often I don't even notice. If it's subtly likable and subtly dislikable, um, I often don't notice. Just, yeah, yeah, it's not intense enough for me to be there, to bestow my precious attention on it. Yeah. So, the Vedana qualities psychologically, are actually quite easily structured. You have no choice about Vedana. When they occur, you don't actually have a choice in liking what you like or in not liking what you like. It's also interesting. They are not about ethics. They are not about intention. You can't fix them with intention. You may decide that you don't like ice cream, and you still like ice cream. Even if you don't take it, you know, it registers as pleasant in your mind, and you think of it, you sit on your cushion, and you think of the ice cream you have heroically re- renounced. You know? So, In other words, you know, the pleasantness of the ice cream, even though right now you haven't actually experienced it because of your heroic act of renunciation, you're settled with the memory of previous ice creams, you still like that. You know? And the next ice cream turning up in your perceptual field will probably be met with like again. So Vedana are not about ethics, they are not about intention. However moral you are, you may still like things that are perfectly immoral, you know, that that disagree with your moral standards, or that disagree with what your parents want you to do, or that disagree with what your society wants you to do. So you don't actually have a choice at the level of Vedana. You do have a choice with what you do with it, you know. Whether you decide to follow through, whether you decide to indulge, whether you decide to repress, you have lots of choices on that level. But on the simple level of liking or not, of experiencing something as stimulating in a pleasant way or as stimulating in an unpleasant way, you don't actually have a choice. So technically speaking, Vedana are Vipaka. They are consequent, they are fruition, they are the ripening of previous uh, behavior, previous experience previous activity now chitta is different in chitta you have a lot more say the, the domain of chitta is strongly influenced by your attitude it is strongly influenced by your habits it is strongly influenced by your intentionality you know? so you can do a lot more with chittas than you can do with vedanas The fourth of those domains is the domain of uh, Dhamma, and um, tradition is of two minds, what that technically is. Uh, The term Dhamma is probably one of the most confusing terms you can come across in Buddhist teaching, because practically anything can be a Dhamma. You know, this is a Dhamma with a long A at the end, not the Dhamma as in the Dhamma of the Buddha with a capital D, but the Dhamma as in phenomenon. So anything can be a phenomenon. Even Nibbana is a Dhamma, though technically not a phenomenon if we have philosophers amongst us, Uh, uh, but it is uh, also a Dhamma. No Dhammas belong to you. Some Dhammas are permanent. In early Buddhism there is only one, that is awakening. Later Buddhists have some mixed feelings about this, but we're not going to go there tonight. Um, For us, Dhammas are basically of two two groups. Uh, One interpretation of that term in the Satipatthana says, any event in your experience is a legitimate object of your investigation. Any event, anything you can experience is a legitimate object of your attention and your trying to understand how it came about and how it works. So any state of mind is a legitimate object of investigation. Any feeling, any thought, any pattern, any habit, any behavioral act is a legitimate object of investigation. Many Buddhist traditions would understand it that way. Some Buddhist traditions insist that the Dhamma in the Satipatthanas are simply the Dhammas that are mentioned then a little further down in the text. And there are a number of Dhammas which are to be um, investigated because they are particularly useful or particularly um, insalubrious when it comes to awakening. So the useful ones are easily understand, It's the It's the bhajangas, the awakening factors, and the obstructive ones are easily mentioned. It's the nivaranas, the uh, hindrances. So all of the recensions of Satipatthana teachings we have agree on those two. Now, some of the texts we have, they have considerably more lists in that fourth part of the Satipatthana Sutta. The Pali Sutta has a whole number of, te- of lists in there. One of them is the Kandas, I've already mentioned. One of them is the ayatanas. Uh, one of them is the Four Noble Truths. So the second interpretation of Dhamma says only those Dhammas that are explicitly mentioned in the Satipatthana suttas are really the Dhammas we should investigate. So trying to be consensual here and putting these two interpretations together, we would arrive as a definition of the term Dhamma in the Satipatthana as both either events in our experience that happen in a meditator's mind, and then particular groups of experiences that are named in a specific way in Buddhist teaching and grouped together as being particularly obstructive or particularly useful. In the process of awakening, yeah. so that leaves us with quite a lot, isn't it? Um, if you kind of start lumping all this together, you the thing the picture the picture grows. so you have body experience, this is what's happening somatically. you have hedonic experiences, this was has to do with pleasure and displeasure in my Uh, field, both mental experience, but also bodily experience. Then we have uh, the whole domain of affect, emotion, the citta. And then we have the the contents of our actual experience. So one way of referring to these Dhammas is, in formal meditation, anything that comes up and that has to do with thought, that has to do with image, is a Dhamma. So before we go into the meditative advice the Satipatthana gives us, let's try to clarify a little more these four dimensions. Because they are actually happening all the time. There is no moment in your life that these dimensions of Satipatthana do not take place. In fact, they all take place together. You never have a Satipatthana on your own. There is no such thing as a Satipatthana on, on its own. As there is no such thing as a kanda on its own. You never get one single kanda. All of these models are nominal models. They are just theoretical, nominal ways in which you can distinguish aspects of a chunk of experience. Yeah? You always get the whole experience. You can speak about this aspect, but basically... Even when you speak about this aspect of experience, the other aspects are also there. It's like with an apple. You get an apple. You get the whole apple. You get its color, you get its weight, you get its texture, you get its size, you get its sweetness. So if you have an apple, you can talk about its color. You can say this one is bigger, this one is smaller, this one is yellow, this one is green. It makes a lot of sense to distinguish apples on that basis. For most purposes, it makes a lot of sense to distinguish apples on the basis of their appearance, their weight, their sweetness, their texture. But when you get an apple, even if you speak about color alone, you get the whole apple. So the same way, khandas or the satipatthanas, you always get a a unit of experience. Let's call it an event, a thought in your mind. A sound, a bad feeling in your stomach, a twitch in your knee. This would be an event in your experience. And any such event has all four satipatthanas. So there is a bodily aspect. There is a pleasure and un- displeasure aspect. There is a, a mood aspect. And then there is a cognitive aspect. It has a name or we connected with other forms of experience with memories we connected with something we have connotations for it so in some way you could say these four Satiputanas think of them like a TV station you know they're continually broadcasting uh, uh, and there's many programs running you've got four channels and irrespective of which channel you're on the other channels are also broadcasting but you tune into one particular channel so, we have somatic channel for body, You have hedonic channel for Vedana, we have affective channel for citta, and you have cognitive channel yeah, for dhamma. Habitually, we spend most of our time on channel 4, yeah, on the cognitive channel. That's where the story happens. That's where the plot goes. That's where my narrative is running. So, habitually, because of training, Because of neocortical development, we spend most of our time on Channel 4, thinking about world. I eat a strawberry and I start to think about strawberries. I'm not happy with just tasting the somatic quality, I'm not even happy with appreciating the pleasure that gives me. As soon as I have that, I will probably start thinking about strawberries, possibly talk to my neighbor about strawberry prices and strawberry production and what it reminds me of. how many other strawberries this reminds me of, I'm just eating, and so forth. We all know that. So the very mind that is capable of deepest intuitions, that is capable uh, of most profound, uh, immediate insights, that very mind at the the other end of the spectrum is just chattering away with stories. Stories generally starting off with strawberries and very shortly the strawberries are left behind, and the story is more and more about me. Yeah. Yeah. So it's less and less. The longer my story goes, the less it is about what it started off with, and the more it is about the character called me. Yeah. a fictional protagonist, which takes a lot of work to keep going. And yet, we have all invested in such characters, and we keep them going by thinking about them. So one of the reasons why people prefer electric shocks to thinking about uh, sitting in a chair thinking is because when they think, they think a lot about themselves, and thinking about oneself is intrinsically painful. Yeah. One of my teachers used to say, whenever I want to be depressed, all I do is I just think about myself. Yeah. Yeah. Just keep thinking a little bit about your past, think a little bit, You know, throw in all some temporal adverbials, things like always, me, always. Me never, yeah. And then you just fill in the dots. It's just kind of, you know, a lot about yourself. You you be the most remorseless in listing up all the li- all the long line of your failures and the long line of your disappointments. Depending on your psychological build, you know, whether you're more identifying with the victim role or more with the doer role. Uh, Our stories differ a little, but basically, the way we arrive at these stories is pretty similar. We think about ourselves, we identify with that self, and then we add the bits we know uh, and remember. We're quite selective in our remembering. The bad things we tend to remember a lot better than the good things. For, you know, complicated evolutionary reasons, uh, the long and short of it is, the older we get, the more bad information we have about this character called self, and the more likely we are to be depressed about the outcome of such thinking. So Channel 4 is what preoccupies us. Why does it do that? In a way it's simple that Channel 4 in it its sort of degenerative stage of, of of selfing and thinking about self and uh, producing conceptual proliferations uh, is actually, at the very beginning, an attempt to create meaning. There's something very, very deep in us that wants to wake up, that is curious, that is keen to learn, and that tries to make sense of things. It's very hard to talk human beings out of this one. Human beings have always fiddled with this one one of the most powerful ways to torture human beings is to to make what they do and what costs their energy to make that meaningless yeah to diminish the self value a human being experiences by making it do absolutely pointless things this is very demeaning yeah whether in nazi concentration camps or in in uh in very um, unfortunate work situations There's something profoundly demeaning to us when we are not able to connect things we do with some form of wholesome and um, meaningful pursuit. So that aspect of us that seeks meaning and then seeks to make sense of what's happening, it's not easy to lose that. And in fact, we need it this is something that propels us towards awakening this is something that leads you to investigate even the things we feel are unpleasant in our lives because we've understood that they don't go away by us not trying to by by us not paying attention to these things yeah. and it is the hallmark of a, a spiritual person to actually Stop blaming the world for the things that appear and reappear as unpleasant in one's experience. It is a sign of spiritual maturity to acknowledge ownership, to acknowledge one's own doings, to acknowledge complicity with that which we suffer from. And stop blaming others, my mate or the government or the monk or whoever, yeah? It's not that they're totally innocent, they're not. You know, governments do horrible things to people sometimes, uh, and sometimes my mates are not always great. But my willingness to acknowledge ownership, to acknowledge responsibility, and to be the one who is changing and trying to investigate what's happening here when it feels bad here. This response is the necessary response for spiritual growth and practice. As long as we're blaming, we're, we're still outsourcing responsibility. We're still denying that we have a choice and that we have means to act. So, what does that mean for us with these Satipatthanas? What can I do? I think they're quite useful as particular facets of my experience for some of my experiences, it is a lot more useful to change channel. You know? When I'm angry, and I'm in channel 4 thinking about anger, um, generally I tend to maximize anger. You know? Because when I am angry and I think, then my mind is infected by the anger. And when it is infected by anger, it will remember the things that have made me angry. You know? It will remember the things, this person has made me angry on previous occasions, or it will remember other situations in which I have been angry. And the net effect of that is accumulation of anger. So if I try to negotiate the experience of anger by thinking about anger, I'm in trouble. Very quickly I'm in trouble. Six hours later my hate fantasy still goes on. Yeah. If I manage, and this is not as easy as it sounds, if I manage to change channel from thinking about anger when I'm angry, thinking angry thoughts about people who've made me angry, and thinking about times when I was angry, when I manage to switch channel from channel 4 to channel 1 into the body, where it's unpleasant when the body is angry, You know, anger, I don't know how it is for you and you better find out how it is for you. You better learn the vocabulary of your body when it's angry. Here, for me, this is here in the pit of my stomach. It's unpleasant, it's painful, it's hot. Uh, There's a constriction here and there's a constriction behind my eyes. I have a lot of quite clear symptoms for anger in my body. And these symptoms help me because um, they help me to switch channels and when i manage to switch channels from channel 4 to channel 1 when i'm angry then it means i'm now having an unpleasant physical sensation that doesn't multiply yeah while my channel 4 my anger multiplies because there are countless moments in my life i've been angry i've sinned quite a bit in that department yeah and i'm already getting older so you know i have lots lots so lots to remember yeah so In channel four, there's just too much going on. In channel one, there's only this unpleasant sensation at the pit of my stomach. And if I manage to bring my attention from channel four to channel one, then that sensation of anger is likely to subside very, very quickly. Minute, two minutes. If you can sustain that, minute or two, angry sensation at the pit of your stomach, your anger is very likely cooling down. It may not be gone. The reason for your anger may be still valid, yeah? but your anger reaction has been modulated. And you know what? Even if it is not gone, we're winners. Because as soon as we have a power to modulate that experience, we lose our helplessness. Much of these big, flooding emotions are threatening to us because they can seemingly just overwhelm us. And we're quite happy to cope with one of these emotions if we have a feeling that we're not completely helpless, that we're not completely uh, awash with them. So even if our anger only minimally decreases, that already is an incredibly empowering experience. The same holds true for fear. Fear is an even greater flutter than anger. And fear can make us even more disempowered. If I learn to be with the unpleasant physical sensation of fear, I have a much better chance to maximize my competence, my skills, in a situation that is perceived to be fearful or threatening, or only looks that way or is actually uh, threatening. Either way, I'm a lot better off if I can be with the body and the sensation in the body of that emotional experience rather than when I think about it. So that's why meditation traditions always insist on learning to connect with the body. That's why, they, that's why for days and for weeks and for months we practice coming back to the body, coming back to the body. So channel one instead of channel four. Now to do that it helps to know that in channel four, it helps to actually know what I'm doing. So if I have a theoretical map what it feels like if the attention is in the body, what it feels like if the attention is in the domain of pleasure and displeasure, what it feels like if the intention, attention is in the domain of chitta, of mood and uh, emotion, and what it feels like if the mind is in the domain of thinking uh, and having images. Yeah? If I have such a map, I can more quickly orient what's happening. If I have such a map, and I can orient, I have a much better chance chance to actually remind myself, hey, I can choose. I don't need to be there. It hurts there, and it doesn't work. That's the really bad thing. It doesn't work. So if I just do what I always do, you know, I get what always happens, you know. I'm not getting enlightened, and it hurts, and I'm frustrated. So, depending on your number, you get angry, or you get anxious, or you get depressed, or you get grumpy, or you get overly uh, blue-eyed and naive and all euphoric. Yeah? I'm just naming bad examples here. There's obviously good examples as well, which generally are not such a problem. You know? People are not overwhelmed by loving-kindness and find it difficult to manage in their life. Or people don't find compassion a real problem to their meditative approach. So, yeah. So it makes sense to look at the Satipatthanas as a map and to learn to identify these things in your day-to-day moments sitting on the cushion, eating your food, being on the loo uh, walking through a corridor, cleaning the kitchen you know, what, what is my attention right now doing? Where? in which channel is it? Often these channels are connected, as I said we never get a kanda alone, and we never get a satipatana alone. So sometimes these satipatanas start with something pleasant, yeah? Just says, oh, Vedanas, they don't have names. They just, they, they make sounds. They make, ah, oh. ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah? Vedanas make such sounds. So you get one of these. And then the immediate reaction is, you know, you get one of these, ah. Oh. And then, oh, interest arising, some brightness comes up, yeah, so you've got the chitta. The ah uh is the Vedana bit and the brightness is the chitta bit. And then you turn towards, yeah? so the body comes in, yeah. You find you're turning towards something. Something happy going on in your mind, your body suddenly feeling light and limber and um, mm-hmm. Starting to move strangely, and then Channel Four kicks in and says, "Ah, this is Piazzolla. This is a milonga playing here." Yeah. So usually this is, zuk in one in one move. Yeah, there's something pleasant. My interest is awakened. I turn towards. I feel a brightening of mood. My body is becoming light and moving, and then the label comes in. The commentary comes in and says, "Ah." I recognize the pattern of music, this is a milonga, this is bandoneon playing, this is probably a composition of Astor Piazzolla or something like that. So this is how our Satipatthanas work. That's not the meditation, let's be clear. We haven't spoken about the meditation yet. We will on other occasions, but these Satipatthanas have to be identified in my life as dimensions of an event of my experience. Think of an experience it's like a cloud. Yeah? You can look at it from that angle and then you get the body aspect. You can look at it from that angle and then you get the Vedana aspect. You can look at it from that angle and then you get the mood aspect. Or you can look at it from that angle and then you get names and concepts and connotations. So it's one and the same event looked at from different angles. Yeah. So one of the reasons for satipatthana is it helps us, the messiness of our experience, We're all so easily overwhelmed, you know, you pull one out and then there's a kind of a rat's tail at the end, yeah? Wherever you start, you end up with a whole complex story and what was clear and neat at the beginning and your good intentions were there. And you kind of have complexities and all things seem to hang in and it's really sort of a tacky story. And at the end of it, you don't really know, you know, it's all a mess or complicated or it doesn't work and you don't know what to do. You can't get out of it, and you can't forbid it, and you can't stop yourself, and you don't want to have it, and, and so forth. You're, you're kind of helpless with it. So the Satipatthanas, amongst other things, are helping us to actually just say, choosing different vantage points to be with our experience. So if it's kind of intense and painful, or or if we feel besotted by something or pulled into something, we say, "Is this? what is this? Is this a thought? Is this an emotion? Is this a pleasurable aspect? Is this a body sensation? What am I dealing with? Just to know. Ah, it's unpleasant in the knee and I don't like it and I'm being forced to be in that situation because the guy doesn't ring the bell up front there and I hate it. Yeah. So I, I kind of connect this and my reaction against it and my blaming of responsibility to somebody else, I start connecting the dots there. And I realize I don't have a choice about the knee, but I do have a choice about my reactiveness, and I do have a choice about the blaming. So suddenly, just to know the map gives me an incredible amount of options. I'm out of a helplessness, and I can work. And I can understand the seemingly organic and natural processes actually have are phases, and each of those phases I can offers me options. I can opt out, or I can alter, I can transform, I can trace where it's coming from. So that's one of the things where Satipatthana as a, a chart of the territory of human experience, I believe, comes, comes in handy. And obviously, the Sati bit helps me transform some of this. So one of the things we learn at Satipatthana is learning to switch channels, because um, like with TV, it makes sense to stay in one channel. It makes sense to stay on the channel that is most meaningful and in many ways most effective. If we do channel surfing, usually it doesn't work very well. We get a lot of confusion and nothing of the good stuff that is happening. And it makes sense that we have a say on which channel our attention is. So if we learn to distinguish these channels, we have a better say and we have a better chance to actually make good choices. So let me stop tonight. Uh, I leave this for your consideration. We have not exhausted the topic of Satipatthana, as I hope you're aware. We haven't even started of the actual exercise, but uh, I think this is a a useful for me useful and i hope for you useful way of uh, charting the, the lay of the land a little bit good thanks for your attention let me take a sip of water and then we finish with a recitation uh, of the sharing of merits do we have enough light in here